reading is Job chapter 19 and Job is berating his three so-called friends once more. Then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with your words? Ten times now you have reproached me, shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so that I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honour and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He's alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me a foreigner. They look upon me as a stranger. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written down on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock for ever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you say how we will hound him since the root of his troubles lies in him, you should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will bring punishment by the sword and then you will know that there is judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for Job and for these words that we read this morning. And I pray that you would speak to us by your spirits through these words. You would help us to see Jesus more clearly. Amen. So a bit of a recap. Remember these four markers and a question that we've been uh, spotting, hopefully, through the book of Job as we've been going through it. While I was away, you heard from Susan and Bobby about Job's friends, or uh, miserable comforters, as he called them. 
and their almost but not quite true theology that had done him no good and in fact made him feel much, much worse. And he and they, they were going round in circles through these chapters that we're kind of in the middle of at the moment. They were going round and round in circles. He was really unhappy, not only with what had happened to him, but with the way his friends were treating him, with what they were saying to him, accusing him of. He knew he hadn't done anything to deserve what was happening to him, but they kept insisting, you must have, you must be wicked. In chapter 18, just before these words, we had Bildad the Shuhite, um, and he's pretty brutal. He begins chapter 18 by telling Job to shut up, and then he lists all the ways in which God punishes wicked people, which just so happen to include all the things that have happened to Job. The implication is clear, Job must be a wicked man. But despite all this, Job still longs for God. Towards the end of that reading that Peter just read for us, Job says in verse 27, how my heart yearns within me. Except what he actually says is how my bowels fail. (laughs) You see, in Hebrew, you don't feel with your heart, you feel with your gut. So it's like he feels sick. Like he's faint with hunger. That's how much he longs for God, for things to be right. So, verse 1, Job replies. And he's not only replying to Bildad in chapter 18, he's replying to all three of his friends, and probably his wife as well. He feels tormented. He feels crushed. He feels reproached. And he feels attacked in verses 2 and 3. Ten times you've reproached me shamelessly you attack me. I don't blame him for feeling like that. They have accused him of all sorts of wickedness. They've been making up sins and saying, you must have done that, surely. But they've been accusing him falsely. Remember, Job is blameless and upright, not perfect. He shuns evil and knows forgiveness. Five times in the first two chapters, something like that is said of Job, that he is blameless and upright. Not only were they falsely accusing Job of being wicked, they were, by implication, declaring themselves to be better than him. Verse 5, Job says, you exalt yourselves above me. They probably thought they were speaking for God, that they were speaking for the best. But their almost but not quite true way of seeing the world was hugely damaging, and it was not coming from God. They weren't speaking for God. They were speaking for someone else whose name means accuser or adversary. Remember who that is? Satan. Satan. That's what the word Satan means. It means accuser or adversary. A number of years ago, an ex-clergy colleague phoned me up and he told me I was no use to God anymore. I had no business leading a church. And if he walked into a church and I was there, he'd turn around and leave. I can still hear him saying those words to me, and I can remember my own stunned silence. I was lying on bed at the time, phone against my ear. I didn't know what to say. I mean, what do you say to something like that? And his words, they, they echo down in my head, particularly when I make a mistake or I do something wrong. Now, we had his reasons. He wasn't entirely wrong, and that's the secret behind accusations that stick. You see, the ones that are ridiculous, that are clearly wrong, 
They're easy to brush off. Of course, that's nonsense. But the ones that are partly true, they're the really hard ones. He wasn't entirely wrong. I did need a break. It ended up lasting four years. But neither was he right. He was not entirely right. And he forgot that those who accuse had better watch out. Job told his friends at the end there in verse 29, you should fear the sword yourselves. In the end, Job's friends are only saved from that sword by Job himself, who prays for them in chapter 42. So perhaps are we better to keep our mouths shut, to say nothing at all, even when we see someone doing something wrong? Maybe, yes. But the opposite error to doing what Job's friends did and accusing is to pretend that something isn't sinful, to go around pretending that people are not guilty of wrongdoing. At the end of his letter, James says this, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And I think James had Jesus' teaching in mind when he said that. This is from Matthew 18. Jesus said, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their faults just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Jesus goes on to talk about a kind of more formal church discipline, but it begins with that gentle and notice private warning. See, friends, we need one another. Yes, we need one another to encourage each other along the way, because being a Christian is not easy. We need to love and support one another through all the ups and downs of life. And we need to help one another grow as God's holy children. Which means being ready to warn our sisters and brothers and being ready to hear the warning when it's our turn. I've had many more helpful conversations than the one I've just relayed from people who are coming from a position of more love and more humility that have really helped me change and grow in holiness. Most recently, two or three people have lovingly warned me about my attitude to the Diocese of Birmingham and the way in which I speak publicly about it, some knowing looks around the room. And I've taken that to God in prayer because I think they're right. I think I need to think carefully about the way in which I speak about my senior colleagues. And I'm asking God to help me transform my thinking and my speaking. See, friends, let's not pretend that everything is okay and ignore Jesus' call to be holy. The need to be transformed and renewed in everything. But let's also not be like Job's friends, who accused Job of wrong and acted like they were better than him. There's a line down the middle, and that's the line that we need to try and find. And it means when necessary to warn one another with love and grace and humility, recognising that it'll be our turn one day to hear those warnings. So in verse 6, Job's complaints... A move from his friends to God. And it's quite the list. Job feels attacked by God. Have a look down verses 7 to 12 with me. Job feels like God has ignored him, verse 7, that he's blocked 
and hidden Job's way, verse 8. He strips Job of his previous honour, verse 9. He tears him down and uproots his hope. Ouch. Uproots his hope, verse 10. Job says in verse 11, God's anger burns against him and he's surrounded and besieged by God's army. Job has woken up to find the entire British army outside his tent and RAF jets flying overhead. He's woken up and found himself splashed all over the Sunday tabloids and the world speculating on social media about his behaviour, salivating over the salacious gossip. I don't know if any of you struggled to keep away from the gossip about Hugh Edwards this last few weeks, couple of weeks. Job has nowhere to turn. He is feeling very sorry for himself, capital V, capital S. And it's all God's fault. In verse 21, Job says, have pity on me, my friends, have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. But has it? Is he right? Has God done all of this? Well, as I hope that we're starting to find in the book of Job, the answer is not straightforward. The hand of God has struck me, Job says, but do you recognise those words? In chapter 1, verse 11, Satan tells God, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. And then in chapter 2, verse 5, Satan says, stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones. But who does the striking? It is not God, it is Satan. With God's permission and within God's constraints. God replies to Satan in verses 12 and 6 of chapters 1 and 2, very well then, he is in your hands. It is Satan's hand that has struck Job, not God's. Job does not know that, but we do. Christopher Ash puts it like this, the Satan is fond of disguise. He disguises himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Again and again in the book of Job, the Satan masquerades as the Lord and persuades Job that it is directly the Lord who has turned against him. In verse 11, Job feels like God's anger burns against him, like God counts him among his enemies. But we know that isn't true. We know that God is pleased with Job. He calls him his servant twice, chapter 1, verse 8, and chapter 2, verse 3. My servant, God calls him, a term of honour used by God of Moses and the prophets. Job does not know that, but we do. Can we be God's precious child and suffer terribly? Yes. Are forces of evil real and active in the world? Yes. If we suffer, does that mean we are God's enemy? No. Job did not know what we know about his situation. And so he was stuck in confusion, in anger and pain and sorrow. He didn't understand what was going on. And the hard thing is, we might know what was going on for Job, but we don't know what's going on in our situations. We do not have the big picture that God has. We do not see everything from the perspective of eternity. 
We don't know why. And friends, we will almost certainly never know why. Maybe in heaven we'll finally understand. And in those times of confusion, of anger, pain, sorrow, I pray that we don't drift away from God or turn away from God, but like Job, grip on. He just can't let go of God. He's angry with God, but he can't turn his back. He can't let go, so he rants and he rails. He feels attacked. Thirdly, Job feels alone. When I was at school, we studied a book by Thomas Hardy, the mayor of Casterbridge. Anyone read that or seen it on telly? A few of you. I remember my English teacher, apologies if you're an English teacher and I get this wrong, going on about windows a lot. That's my only memory of the mayor of Casterbridge is windows. I haven't read it since, but in my head, the whole book is about people looking through windows as a kind of literary way of like focusing or framing what's going on. That's my only memory, so uh, I'm, I, I was rubbish at English, I have to say. <laughs> Dickens does the same thing in A Christmas Carol, where Scrooge is looking through the window at the Cratchit family, celebrating their meagre Christmas. I don't know if you, you may not have read it or seen, I've seen the Muppet Christmas Carol or something. <laughs> Pressed up against the window. Something like that is happening to Job, how Job feels in verses 13 to 19. He's been rejected, let's have a look through this, by his family, his relatives, his friends, his acquaintances, his servants, even the little boys kicking a football through the street, all those he loves. Look down that list. Every single one he's been rejected by. And now look at the words he uses to describe how utterly alone he feels, alienated, completely estranged. They've gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. Count me as a foreigner. Look on me as a stranger. My servant doesn't answer, though I beg him. My breath is offensive. I'm loathsome. The little boys scorn me and ridicule me. My intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. It's quite the list, isn't it? His face is pressed up against the window. But he's stuck outside. Trapped and alone in the depths of his despair. It's not a great place to be. Job is alone. We saw him, this is a picture from chapter 2. We saw him alone, scraping his sores with a piece of pottery, and now in those verses we hear him express it in his own words, which makes what he says next even more astonishing. Verse 23. Oh, that my words were recorded that they were written in a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's in my moments of deepest and darkest night that I have the most clarity, that I see things as they are. When all else is stripped away, when we are left with our deepest longings, and we realise, ah, that's what really matters to me. 
Sometimes that's a good thing to realise, sometimes that's a bad thing to realise. But that's what happens to Job in these verses. Everything is stripped away and he is left with a longing for God. Thanks to Satan's plan, Job has nothing and no one left. They've all gone away. But instead of cursing God as Satan thought he would, God is all Job longs for. His heart yearns. His bowels fail. He feels sick. He's faint with thirst and hunger for God. You see, a true worshipper is not someone who is on a constant spiritual high, though those moments are precious. A true worshipper is not someone for whom everything goes well, who faces no challenges in life. A true worshipper is someone who doesn't drift away or turn their back on God when things get tough. See, these verses are a highlight and a high point, both of this chapter of the book of Job and really of the whole Bible. They begin, don't they, with that knowing wink from the Holy Spirit. Oh, that my words were recorded that they were written on a scroll. In fact, they were written on several scrolls over many centuries, and they will stand forever, far more than if they had been engraved on rock, which weathers and fades. If you've ever been to a, a cemetery, about 70, 80 years, you can barely read them. Things that are engraved on rock. These words stand forever. Job was accused by his friends, felt attacked by God, and feels completely alone. But here he is assured in his faith. I know, he says. I know I have a redeemer who lives. I know he will stand on the earth. I know I will see God. Job had the faith described in Hebrews 11, verse 1. Confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That is Job's expression of faith here. He did not see. He did not understand. But he knew and trusted God. It's startling how Job can go in this one chapter. He can talk about God wronging him in verse 6. He can talk about God counting Job as his enemy in verse 11. He can talk about God treating Job as the worst of sinners. And then in verse 25, describe God as his redeemer. It's so startling that Job does that, that some think Job must mean someone else. That the redeemer there isn't God, it's some other person. The word redeemer means kinsman redeemer, which we hear in Ruth. A close relative who sees that justice is done after you're dead. Well, maybe Job's talking about that. Except that, you forget, everyone's gone. He's been abandoned by his family, by all his relatives. He has no one left except God. And actually, to think that the redeemer is someone else ignores one of the central tensions of the book. Is God Job's enemy or Job's redeemer? And the title of today's sermon is another way of asking that question. 
one of the central questions of the book, possibly one of the central questions of our lives, is God for me or against me? And this passage tells us the answer is yes. It's one of the central tensions of the Bible. As God wrestles with his people, that's what Israel means, wrestles with God. Redeeming and saving them time after time, needing to punish them from their sin time after time. If you know the Old Testament, you'll know it's a continual cycle. The prophets constantly calling God's people back to faithfulness and announcing God's judgment time after time. When God speaks through those prophets, you hear at once his love for his people and his anger at their sin. You hear at once his sadness at the way they turn away from him and his longing for them to come back, to worship him with their hearts and not just their lips. And here, yet again, in Job, we see that tension. And it points us forward to Jesus. It's interesting how, do you not think, in this book that poses all these questions about suffering, time and again, we are driven to the cross. For it is only on the cross that God shows how justice can be done and mercy can be shown at the same time. It is only on the cross that God demonstrates his holiness and his love at the same time. It is only on the cross that God is against us as our judge and for us as our redeemer at the same time. Paul puts it like this in Romans 5. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. On the cross... Job was not blessed as we are to know about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. But still he said in verse 26, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I will see him myself with my own eyes. He spoke more truth than he realized. In that deepest, darkest of nights, he saw clearly that however much he felt God was against him, ultimately God was for him. He just didn't know how. And so he felt sick with longing. Longing for more, longing for that day, longing to see God with his own eyes. I wonder if you know that feeling. I won't ask you if you know what it's like for your bowels to fail. But that deep feeling of longing for more, for something else. This can't be it. I mean, come on. You're a lovely bunch, but... <laughs> there must be more! God put eternity in the human heart. That's what that feeling is. The feeling that there's more. This life is not all there is. And that is a longing for God. And that longing can only be satisfied in Him. We try and satisfy it. C.S. Lewis says... Our passions are not too great. They're too little. We're satisfied with worldly things like money, power and sex. 
He said, that's like a child being hungry and having a mud pie when there's a roast dinner around the corner. Job feels sick with longing. Sometimes when we read about God's loving care for us in the Bible, it just doesn't feel like that, though, does it? It feels more like God is against us than that he is for us. Sometimes it might feel like God is only against us. Or perhaps like he isn't even there at all. And it's in those moments that we need one another. To stand alongside one another in faith. To hold each other up. To help one another to cling to that precious truth that Job spoke. My Redeemer lives. Those three words, they mean everything. Without those three words, our faith is in vain. We might as well go home. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, it's game over. But he is. My Redeemer lives. See, in those moments when we're struggling, when we feel like God is against us, those words from Romans 8 that we know so well might not feel real, but they are real no matter what we feel. Because in Jesus, God is always for us. And there is nothing that can take away his love for us in Jesus. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, even the Satan, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All because my Redeemer lives. I know that for myself. I hope you know that. I hope you know that your Redeemer lives. Because he does. And in him, God's love for you can never be taken away. So I encourage you this morning to respond to that love in whatever way feels fit today, this week. Say to God, yes, please. If you have that longing in your heart for something more, that's the longing for Jesus. And you won't find anything that will satisfy that longing other than Jesus. Only in Jesus my Redeemer lives. I hope yours does too. Amen.